This is Jacobin Radio. I'm producer, director, and engineer Melissa Figueroa, sitting in for Susie Weissman. Today we spend the hour discussing the historic series of winter storms that have been lashing the entire state of California since New Year's Eve, causing widespread flooding, landslides, wind damage, and levee failures that have resulted in three deaths so far. And with rain forecasted to continue all the way until Martin Luther King Day, the worst may be yet to come. While California is far better known for droughts, earthquakes, and wildfires, atmospheric rivers from the Pacific also bring regular flooding, sometimes on a biblical scale, an inherent feature of California's extreme weather regime that is expected to increase in frequency and intensity as a result of climate change. My guests today bring various perspectives to the flood that touch on its historical, scientific, and sociopolitical significance. First, I discuss the deep history of California's 200-year flood cycle with indigenous traditional ecological practitioner Ali Metters-Knight, who brings the long view to a place that has only been called California for 180 years. Then, I speak to climate scientist Daniel Swain about the complex dynamics of atmospheric river events and how climate change and wildfires contribute to intensifying the extremes of California's drought and flood cycles. Finally, Myla Ablog, a wetland ecologist and former regulatory official, discusses the state of California's infrastructure, the impact of these floods on workers and houseless people in the Central Valley and elsewhere, and what we can and must do to prepare our communities for the other big one. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm producer, director, and engineer Melissa Figueroa, sitting in for Susie Weissman, who is out this week. Susie is recovering from major surgery and will be on hiatus for a few weeks. Today, we'll spend the hour discussing the historic series of winter storms that have been lashing the entire state of California since New Year's Eve. An atmospheric river coming in from the Pacific turned into an extreme bomb cyclone storm event, causing widespread flooding, landslides, wind damage, coastal storm surges, and levee failures that have resulted in three deaths so far, as well as major damage to homes, utilities, and infrastructure around the state. From December 24th to January 4th, San Francisco received a whopping 10.34 inches of rain, a 10-day record not broken since the Great Flood of 1862. On January 2nd, two levees broke on the Kasumnas River, inundating most of Sacramento County with flash floods that claimed two lives and shut down Highway 99, a major arterial route for the state. With rain forecasted to continue all the way until Martin Luther King Day, the worst may be yet to come, as a new onslaught of wind and rain comes on top of already saturated soil, overflowing creeks, and major rivers and water infrastructure already at flood stage. When we think about disasters in California, catastrophic floods rarely make the list of things we think and worry about. Earthquakes and wildfires are generally the first things that come to mind, and where water is concerned, drought is most often the major issue of the day. 
But periodic great floods that inundate the Central Valley are also an essential part of California's extreme climate cycle, a reset button, if you will, for California's ecosystem. My first guest today is traditional ecological knowledge practitioner Ali Metters Knight, who is indigenous to the northern Sacramento Valley region in the Sierra foothills and Tumachupta Territory, also known as Chico, California. Ali is executive director of California Open Lands and has worked for over 20 years, a lifetime of work in California ecosystems. So welcome to the show, Ali. Thank you. Hey, Tunani. Thank you. Let's start with the basics. So what is an atmospheric river? Uh, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, atmospheric rivers are relatively long, narrow regions in the atmosphere that transport water vapor outside of the tropics. So they're literally like a river in the sky. When the atmospheric rivers make landfall, they release the water vapor in the form of rain or snow. Atmospheric rivers that come to California can often carry as much as 15 times the volume of the Mississippi River and sometimes two to three times the volume of the Amazon. So this is no joke. The National Weather Service has a classification system now for atmospheric rivers that range like a hurricane between one and five. And the ones that are hitting us right now is a category five. You know, this flood seems like a really extraordinary event, especially because as Californians, we've been dealing with drought for such a long time. But how does flood fit into the long-term cycle of ecosystems and weather and climate that indigenous people have known about for far longer than the 180 years that California has been a state in the modern sense? I'm glad you mentioned that the state of California is only 180 years old, because that really puts the scope into perspective. So if we're going to put California native indigenous life here, at least for the last 100,000 years or 75,000 years, we're really putting the new colonial landscape onto California for the only the last 180 years. So What's made California so valuable, especially Northern California, is these hundreds of feet of beautiful runoff and sediment. This runoff and sediment is like the silt that runs down all these foothills and this huge basin that is half Sierra Nevada and then half this watershed that comes through this mountain range that protects us exactly from the West Coast oceans. So it really is a bathtub. And every 200 years, there is a huge sediment runoff that happens. And this is a major flood. Today, we recognize the value of this huge abundance of silt that comes through the foothills because today, right now, it's the number one economy in the United States and the number five economy in the world for agriculture because of that nutrient soil from these floods all these years. So technically, California's golden goose is also something that's dependent on something that most people don't even know about, which are these 200-year periodic floods. Now, 
of course, indigenous people have deep, deep cultural memory of these things. And it's also begun to be corroborated by science. Paleoclimate data shows that these big floods have occurred in 1862, 1750, 1605, and going all the way back. Around every 200 years, a big flood comes and basically washes out the Central Valley, like you said, like a bathtub. Now, most people don't even know that there was a flood in 1862, but some people recall history buffs, you know, the, the great flood of 1862, in which an atmospheric river event brought rain for 43 straight days to California. It submerged Sacramento under 30 feet of water. Leland Stanford had to take a rowboat to San Francisco, which was the temporary capital of California for more than six months. It caused untold damage to all of the new settlements that had been in the early colonization and brought an end to that first generation of the 49ers and the gold rush. We don't even know how many people died. We don't even know how many cattle died, but it was absolutely in the thousands. And this is in widely available historical documents, but most people don't even understand that. So what can you tell us about say, the last time the big flood came? And what are the cultural memory that exists up here in Northern California about that? So I was really curious about our historical connection with Kanaka, or the Hawaiian community. There is a long-standing history, and it started with the cemetery here in Chico, California, and I noticed there was several graves, but one that was marked and, and written in the Hawaiian language. And the English version, what well, this was the queen in waiting, the descendant of King Kamehameha. And so I was really curious how King Kamehameha was connected with Chico and the Machupta tribe. And it really pulled me into the story of the Rainbow Bridge that predated colonial contact with California. And it spoke of these floods, 200-year floods, that allowed, after these major floods, the Hawaiian community was able to come in on these, these ocean currents straight to Northern California as, as a current, and actually just sail their boats into the community of Sacramento Valley because it was so flooded that you would only be able to get around on boat or canoe. And so this was something that was very familiar. So this kind of gave me this history that this has been ongoing. And this is a story that predated 1862 and allowed us to understand that even looking at historical records, there was almost a notice, a two-year notice from the Kanaka community that had been here to notice the weather patterns to guess when this flood was going to happen. And I think that because it happens every 200 years, it was very like monumental for these communities to be able to reach each other so quickly and so easily through these flood occurrences. It's funny that You've been talking about the Rainbow Bridge. You know, I, I've 
heard about these stories from you. And recently there was a satellite photo of the most recent atmospheric river where the system had stretched from Indonesia to California. And of course, with the false color images coming in from the satellite, it literally looked like a rainbow bridge. But of course, you know, as an ecologist and a scientist, I can understand how that could also happen if you follow a storm track. You know, storm tracks leave rainbows. And even in some of these historical accounts that you mention, you know, the settler accounts say that the natives mysteriously disappeared sometime before the flood, which, of course, if you understand that they have advanced notice from understanding and reading the signs and dealing with the Kanaka who, you know, recognized natives and each other, they had a mutual recognition as water people, you can see how they were just following common sense. You know, it's an incredible story of pre-colonial contact of these regimes of knowledge that far pre-existed anything that Western science even had. And this is one of the things that literally today, as we're facing this, this series of floods. Now, this particular series of floods is not the big one. It's not, it doesn't even come close to the Great Flood of 1862, but it is somewhat of a preview. Right. And as we'll hear in the next interview with Daniel Swain, somewhat of an anomaly as well. You know, it's very vital for us to really understand the context of climate change. But because California is only 180 years old and because the Western scientific record for California doesn't even really go back more than 120, 130 years at most. This has a lot of implications, I think, for, again, how prepared or unprepared we are for an event of this magnitude. It has come every 200 years. And this is not just indigenous stories. This has been modeled and it has been studied by the USGS, by FEMA, by a lot of the federal agencies who understand that this is a scientifically inevitable phenomenon. And if you want to look it up, listeners, just Google the arc storm scenario. So it's a number of disaster scenarios that the USGS does studies on. And this is one of the ones that New York Times did a recent article on it. They're calling it like the $1 trillion disaster. And let's talk about the 200-year flood coming now. Right In the time where uh, California's water infrastructure has literally replumbed all of the watersheds of the state to provide water for billionaire farmers in the Central Valley who are growing crops in a place we should never grow crops in, where almost every city is supplied by water from a dam and a reservoir, as well as electricity from and hydroelectricity. I mean, the last time that this really was an issue in the, you know, in the mainstream and in the press was about drought, right? How water allocations were made in an unusually wet period for California about, you know, this is where Chinatown, all of these things happened. And of course, that coming not only a couple of decades after the flood of 1862. So you can kind of see how when you take the long view, these things come really into a different perspective. So now it's been 
in the last century, all of this infrastructure, all of these cities, all of these development has been built up in places that really should be wetlands, that really have been wetlands and marshes and places for water storage and the buildup of the sediments, as, as you have said, that keep the value and the fertility of the soil going. So what does that mean for us today and how can we make sense of it in this way? Well, you're going to have two different approaches. I think it's really important to see the governor and the state of California approaching the opportunity of this disaster as a way of creating, you know, a drainage to the twin tunnels and then to maximize the profits of this fresh water before it hits the ocean. And that is typically a very, you know, well, let's capture what we can and um, sell it before it goes to the ocean because that's a waste. That is one approach. And that is realistically what politically we look at in the state of California that dominates the conversation. Secondly, you will have the reality of an overwhelming amount of water unpredicted and unable to, like, the, the infrastructure of California's water utilities cannot hold this much water that comes with these 200-year floods. So the infrastructure itself will be compromised. And so what we get then is really, I think, the reality of this is that we are in a kind of like in a test tube. We are being studied as a major flood event happens to basically the number one economy in the United States. And how do we survive and develop mechanisms to live this way? We are basically being watched for that because there's really no answer to that. It's never been done before. Nobody has replumbed such a large area of water and expected such a large population of 40 million people to survive an inundation of water. And so... I'm sure they're looking at a high mortality rate at the end of the day, but still trying to come up with the best way of making money off of that. And that's disaster capitalism. But we really don't have an option as a citizens to double down on that. We really have to understand our watershed locally in order to survive these floods. So, yes, we all know from the Gulf to... California to right here in Chico, the effects of disaster capitalism, where human lives and especially human lives in the aftermath of a disaster are kind of swept under the rug. I mean, campfire happened in 2018, and we still have people on our streets that are fire survivors that were never able to get homes. You know, this is a big issue as well for floods like this because we have large unhoused communities camping near rivers, camping near creeks, on levees, on these quote-unquote marginal areas that are actually like really critical flood protection. And almost every year we, we see loss of life from flash floods like in the LA River. And, you know, I want to also talk about what hope there might be in a counterpoint to disaster capitalism, which is disaster indigenism. So because this isn't the Great Flood, but it is kind of a preview, what are some of the lessons that you think we can watch for and take from this atmospheric river event to think about 
what we can do in the future as communities, as political activists, as people who can make demands on the state because we have a common problem that we must address. What are some ways that we can use this moment right now to argue for a better way to go about disaster preparedness? Well, I think collectively there were people in the community that can start pulling together, whether grassroots or with their agencies and organizations, climate adaptation centers. And I think these climate adaptation centers in different areas and different communities should be working together, getting funding through the federal and state government for this adaptation and making these resource centers available where you kind of give the full scope of what climate change means, where it's not just wildfires, it's not just floods, it's not just earthquakes, and it's not just tornadoes or hurricanes, whatever those things that we have, we really need to have an, a center for education, but also adaptation tools for those things. And I think that's a really great place where I've learned where seed banking and like understanding resilient native plants within those landscapes that do a lot of the work during each season that have been in these places for thousands of years. These plants have adapted. These native plants have been here for thousands of years, way beyond humans being here, that have this DNA to adapt to these things. We really have to reintroduce the method of thinking that native plants belong in these all of our spaces not just within our landscapes not just within to look pretty but to actually function within our climate change adaptation scenario and game plan for the future governor newsom has recently announced and you know made a big deal out of a really historic amount of funding that is being put towards climate resilience and adaptation $12 billion announced for 30 by 30, which is conserving 30% of the land by 2030, money for climate resilience centers and uh, what he calls nature-based solutions to climate change. And, you know, I consider this a really unprecedented opening and an opportunity for some of what you're saying to come to fruition. But at the same time, we are in a spot where it is almost like disaster capitalism and disaster indigenism and disaster eco-socialism are kind of competing for prominence in this time period where we're facing these unprecedented threats. So what can we do together? What, what are some things that you're seeing? What are some things that we can do to organize so that disaster capitalism doesn't win the order of the day, that these funds will be used for protecting a wide swath in different communities, historically disadvantaged and marginalized communities, as well as the rich people who we know are already buying up places in, in areas that they consider safe. Well, fortunately, I feel like I come from a California native community that is definitely in post-apocalypto California we've already had apocalypse. We've already been destroyed. Genocide was run down on us for a hundred years by the existence and development of the state of California. California was built on genocide and killing people. California was built that way. That's your bricks. That's your foundation. That's what made California killing people. 
for land. And now that land is making people vulnerable. And so my suggestion is, is that we kind of talk to the native folks that have survived the apocalypse. My answer is seed banking. Know your medicine. Get back to understanding your ecosystem. Do you live in a riparia? Do you live in a woodland? Do you live in the desert? Where do you live? And how does your ecosystem function? Because it'll either save you or destroy you. This is California. And we're not done with everybody here. But we are in post-apocalyptic California from a native perspective. And so my answer is, is that learn to survive on the land. Know your medicine. Know your environment. Or it'll get you. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us and very thankful for for folks like Allie and for other California Native folks that are really stepping up to this challenge and educating and doing projects and teaching people and preparing the way for a more resilient and survivable future. So thank you so much, Ali, for joining us. Ali Metters-Knight is a Machupta tribal member, basket weaver, mother of five, and a master TEK, traditional ecological knowledge practitioner in Machupta territory, also known as Chico, California. She's also executive director of California Open Lands. That's CaliforniaOpenLands.org and founder of TEK Chico, which is a community initiative that's doing exactly what she's saying, helping people to learn about their local ecosystem and live on the land. And so you can check out her vision at TEKChico.org. Thanks so much. And don't go away. We'll be right back with climate scientist Daniel Swain. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm producer, director, and engineer Melissa Figueroa, sitting in for Susie Weissman, who is recovering from surgery. We now turn to Dr. Daniel Swain, who is a climate scientist at UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. He is also a research fellow in the Capacity Center for Climate and Weather Extremes at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and is a California climate fellow at the Nature Conservancy. He is the author of the Weather West blog at weatherwest.com, where he provides real-time perspectives on California weather and climate events, as well as on his Twitter account at weather underscore West. I highly recommend following his accounts for his great analysis as the event unfolds. So my first question for you, Dr. Swain, is about the science of atmospheric river events in general. So can you give us a sense of where this particular storm fits or maybe doesn't fit in the pattern of atmospheric river events that normally we do get a couple yearly, and then there's some decadal events where we have more intense ones. So what may be different, if anything, about this particular system of storms, and how does that relate to climate change as you see it? Well, thanks for that introduction. And yeah, I think this is a good question because I've been getting it a lot this week, you know, sort of what is the broader context of the sequence of storms that were part of the way through and looks likely to continue actually for a while still, at least through next week and maybe even beyond. 
it's been pretty wet. I mean, that's the short of it, I guess. That is noticeably so in historical context. So I I actually just found out within the past hour that San Francisco, for example, has now seen its wettest 10-day period in recorded history, which means going back to the mid-1800s at least. So that's a pretty historically significant event. In San Francisco, it's been somewhat less remarkably wet up north, though. So in the northern third of the state, if we're talking the northern Sacramento Valley and the foothills, Shasta drainage, Oroville, Feather River drainage, places like that, somewhat less historically significant so far. But again, we're only partway through this, and it actually looks like it's going to be focused more on the northern third of the state going into next week. So this is... In some ways, a familiar process. We've seen a sequence of atmospheric river events. None of them have yet been particularly extreme on their own, but cumulatively, it's really starting to add up. And what we're likely to see next week is probably more precipitation than we've seen so far during this sequence. So when all is said and done by mid-January, it looks like we're very likely going to end up with some significant flooding across portions of Northern California that we haven't seen in at least several years, and maybe longer than that. It looks like we're probably headed for at least as wet a sequence as we saw during the peak of the 2016-2017 winter, which was uh, ended up being the wettest winter on record in, in parts of Northern California, uh, at least going back to about the early 1900s. So we're in the midst of this very wet period. It's not yet historically wet in most places, but we might get close before all is said and done. And of course, this is all occurring in the context of what was a very severe, historically severe long-term drought. So there is certainly good news here, as well as the potential harms from flooding, because there is substantial drought alleviation going on right now. The ecosystems certainly needed it. The reservoir levels were getting awfully low. If we didn't have this heading into next summer and fall, we may have been for some real trouble. So there's definitely benefits coming from all of this water, as well as some potential harms through the flooding. One of the ways I like to think about this particular storm sequence and others in recent history in the broader context of long-term climate and climate change is that as temperatures warm, we are going to see more extreme precipitation events because a warmer atmosphere holds exponentially more water vapor, which raises the ceiling essentially on how intense precipitation can become. But we also sometimes forget to think about the other side of the spectrum. And if you think about the atmosphere as sort of being analogous to an increasingly large sponge, in fact, a sponge that is about 4% bigger for every degree Fahrenheit of warming. Well, a regular old kitchen sponge, you can both absorb water and wring it out, right? Think of wringing out the water kind of like precipitation, But you can also soak up a lot of water if you spilled something on the kitchen counter, for example. If you have a tiny sponge, you can soak up a little bit of water. And if you have an enormous sponge, you can soak up tons of water. That means you can both wring out more water, so heavier precipitation in the analogy, but you can also remove more of that water from the landscape. So if the atmosphere is acting as this progressively larger sponge in a warming climate, we might see both more extreme precipitation and more flood risk on the one hand, but also more intense droughts, more rapid aridification, faster drying out of the vegetation, worse wildfires on the other side of the coin. So we are seeing both. And just in the last 10 years or so, we've swung back and forth pretty wildly from extreme wet to extreme dry and then back again more than once. So we are starting to see this. 
And this is the whiplash effect that you've been describing, right? And exactly. Um, I have a related question to that in two senses. Number one, one of the things that I think we've seen, at least in my perception, as sort of unusual about this event is the combination of atmospheric river storm with the bomb cyclone, which, again, brings wind as well as water and increases the intensity of the storm. You also have been working on the arc storm scenario, which is the USGS and FEMA scenario of the 200-year flood akin to the 1861 to 1862 flood that we discussed earlier, you know, this is not the arc storm, not quite close. This is what something like 14 days instead of the 43 straight days of rain that was experienced in 1862. But we've already seen a lot of damage done nevertheless. And so one of the articles that you published late last year on the arc storm was really, really interesting. And that was the relationship of mega flood events to the fires and that there's a, a correlation. And as uh, we've heard from the tribal perspective, fire brings water. And your research seems to really confirm that. So do you see any relationship to at least not just to this storm, but to future storms, given the period of intense wildfires we've had, and this being, of course, a function of that whiplash effect. What are your thoughts about that? Well, from our perspective, I think the relationship between increasingly severe wildfire conditions across much of the Western U.S. and increasingly intense precipitation events at least at first glance, isn't necessarily a causal relationship, but in fact, there is sort of this third external factor that is driving both of them. And it is related to this whiplash effect, this increasing propensity of the atmosphere to act as a giant sponge, because on the one hand, it raises the ceiling on how intense precipitation can be, so it checks that box, but it also extracts water more rapidly out of the landscape. So both out of the living vegetation under scarcity conditions, but also, you know, out of, out of the vegetation that has accumulated uh, partly due to the, the fire exclusion policies of the 20th and early 21st centuries. So there's a lot of dead and down vegetation that wouldn't have been there for very long, wouldn't have stuck around for more than a few years under pre-colonial fire regimes. And now that stuff is really drying out. So this whiplash effect is acting on this other anthropogenic factor, which isn't directly related to climate change, but then ends up being amplified by climate change. So one of the reasons we're seeing these more severe fires is, you know, as the atmosphere demands more water from the landscape and the landscape has these higher and higher densities of vegetation, we're seeing these worse fires, which can be followed just statistically by more intense precipitation. And so that's sort of the interplay here. It's also true, probably, that in California, for example, most droughts end in floods. And that's because in order to get enough precipitation to end a drought, it's usually going to flood because we get such big droughts we need a big amount of precipitation to end them, and usually that's enough to cause flooding. And so I think the other reality there is there may well be some historical relationship that when you had droughts, you had more fires or more intense fires, maybe more extensive fires, and that generally speaking, whenever that period of enhanced fire activity ends, it ends because there was a whole lot of precipitation. And so then you get the floods that follow. And so I think that may be where that comes from, is this interesting relationship over time. In a climate change context, I think mainly 
we have this this third factor, this increased atmospheric water vapor holding capacity that's in a lot of ways driving both of these things. But it's going to be a real challenge. And I think there's an interesting potential anecdote here about what just happened on the Kasumnas River earlier, just this past week with the New Year's Eve storm, where there was pretty severe flooding on that river that was much worse than the flooding on other rivers. Now, there's a lot of things about this particular river and watershed that are different than other Northern California watersheds, but one of which is that there are no large dams on the Mm -hmm. Kasumnas River. So there isn't active management of flows nearly to the same extent as there are on most other major Northern California rivers. Usually this is a good thing, but in this context, it means that whatever rain fell immediately turned into runoff and immediately entered the watershed. The upstream portion of that watershed was extensively and intensively burned in the Caldor fire back in 2021. That's not that long ago. And it was the particularly steep portions of that watershed. And unfortunately, the very high intensity portion of that fire in particular in its early days that burned a lot of that watershed. So there is some speculation that, yes, the precipitation was quite heavy, but was the runoff even more intense than we would have expected from that amount of rainfall because so much of that watershed had burned? I think that's highly plausible, and that's going to be a subject of some inquiry moving forward. But I think there's a lesson there for the rest of California, since there's lots of watersheds that have burned like that. There are lots of places in California that could experience similar issues, not the least of which is in Butte County and the Feather River watershed, where the Dixie Fire really burned most of that relatively large watershed in recent years. And of course, the McKinney Fire and any number of other fires up in the northwestern California and near Shasta. So I, I, this is this is going to be a major challenge, you know, moving forward in ways that I'm not sure that we're we've had to deal with all that much over the past century because we haven't quite had the confluence of fire and flood. But that's very much going to be a signature of the kind of climate I think we experience in California in the coming decades. Yes, and thank you for that. I'm in Butte County right now. I visited the Dixie Fire burn scar. Um, one of the things about the intensity of the mega fires that has happened is that it really has moonscaped a lot of these places where, you know, and mostly timberlands as well with non-native trees that are not that fire adapted. Um, and so you see that the real devastation from the the changing of the forest composition, the the intensity of the wildfires, and then there's nothing left to really hold that runoff. So yeah, we we are on high alert about that, um, as well as um as you know, a lot of things that have happened. Uh, 2017, as you recall, is the year that the Oroville Dam nearly failed, prompting an evacuation of 180,000 people. So it's definitely an area of concern for us up here. One thing I wanted to also go into was that I thought this was very interesting because, you know, a lot of the flood events that we've experienced 2017, um, in the late 90s, um, these, these big storm events have normally been associated with El Nino, so the El Nino Southern Oscillation in the Pacific Ocean. This particular storm is happening in a, in a La Nina year, and not just La Nina, but like a rare third year in a row La Nina. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this in the context of that pattern, and what does that mean when El Nino eventually returns, which it will in about five to ten years? 
Yeah, I mean, this past winter is another La Nina year. And, and just to back up a little bit, you know, La Nina essentially means that ocean temperatures in the eastern tropical Pacific are unusually cool. And El Nino means the opposite. It means that the ocean temperatures in the eastern tropical Pacific are unusually warm. And that ends up influencing global weather patterns, including precipitation in California to some extent. Right now, we're in the cool phase, La Nina. Still, as you mentioned, this is the rare third triple dip year of La Nina. And the current pattern we're seeing, which is a very wet one with a, a sort of a persistent Gulf of Alaska low pressure system, is not typical of La Nina year. So La Nina does not appear to be driving this pattern. And even though it walks and talks like an El Nino pattern, we, it's not because of El Nino, because El Nino currently isn't occurring. La Nina is weakening at the moment, and there are some pretty strong signs we're actually going to transition to El Nino as soon as this summer. So that could actually happen sooner rather than later. And perhaps it could even be a significant El Nino event. So stay tuned for more on that this spring and summer. But I think it just goes to show two things. One is that seasonal prediction is difficult. El Nino and La Nina aren't everything, although they are still something. You know, I don't want to undersell it either. They're still the most powerful predictors of hydroclimate of the American Southwest that we have, aside from climate change, unfortunately, these days. So I, I don't want to exclude them as useful tools and, and, and knowledge that we can use to make predictions. But also there are other influences that can sometimes drown them out, sometimes completely. And I think that's what's happening right now, where we're just not seeing the influence of La Nina in this pattern. There's something else going on that's really producing this extraordinary wet period. And you know, as I mentioned, up to a certain point, it's great news. And beyond a certain point, it starts becoming bad news again. So I'm hoping we thread the needle, although it does unfortunately look like there probably will be some significant flooding by next week in parts of Northern California. Well, we shall see. And thank you so much for your insight today, Dr. Swain. Again, please follow his Twitter. It is a really, really good source of information. It's weather underscore West at Twitter and his blog at weatherwest.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm producer, director, and engineer, Melissa Figueroa, sitting in for Susie Weissman. We're now going to turn to what all of this means for our communities, for communities around the state. And for this, I'm now speaking with Myla Ablog, who is a wetland ecologist and environmental justice activist who has worked from the Bay to the Delta in California's Central Valley for over 20 years. She has worked in federal and state regulatory processes as an Army Corps regulatory project manager and a Caltrans associate environmental planner and biologist. She's a former director of conservation and education at Little Manila Rising in Stockton and worked on restoration of Chrissy Field in the Presidio with the National Park Service and has worked with numerous nonprofits and community organizations on environmental literacy, education, and JEDI, that means justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion issues for the community. So welcome to the show, Myla. Thank you so much. Good morning. So as we're kind of sort of enjoying this small break in the atmospheric river systems, we're 
undergoing a a more moderate storm right now, but into Monday and Tuesday, there really is a lot of expected flooding and potentially catastrophic conditions in much of Northern California. And as the series of storms has rocked the state all the way up and down, a lot of attention has been actually directed to the rural levee system, which in many places is not really even up to par for even a moderate storm of this size, not to mention a lot of these things. So having worked in regulatory issues, especially in the Central Valley, where a lot of this uh, flood risk is expected to come into play in the next few days, What's been your experience with looking at just the way that the rural levee systems, watersheds, wetlands have been treated in the Central Valley? And what are your concerns going into these next few days? Well, I grew up in the Central Valley and I even remember, I think there was a big flood in like 83 and my house in a brand new subdivision was near a small like local creek, but everybody knows the local creek. And I remember correctly, it overtopped. But at that time, there was no houses built there. And just told me about the power of water that I was already interested in at a young age. And then just in the last week, I had to drive up to Sacramento and saw the Consumnes River flood area like I think probably just before one of the levees broke and my driver was remarking on that was a vineyard that was like well it's built to absorb flood water but the that levee as you know or as we all know ended up breaking and the Central Valley flood protection program is like literally at this point you know a lot of folks believe it's weak and there's not enough protections for not only landowners, but anybody that lives there. And we have so many going from the landowners who have vineyards and farmland and properties to protect to the unhoused folks who live along many of these like levees and waterways, people who live in houseboats. They're, I don't even know if they're eligible for flood protection, much less the upland folks whose land has subsided over many years of farming and losing soil. So you know, there's multiple layers of concerns that we're all seeing come to a head right now as people are running out to go get waterproof flashlights. And so from the Central Valley to seeing a mixture of types of folks who want to protect their land and their property and their livelihood, we all need to be prepared for this climate change and resiliency and transition to protecting what we all hold dear to ourselves. Absolutely. You mentioned the subsidence in the Central Valley, which in the, the last couple of decades of drought has subsided over 30 feet because of all of the groundwater pumping that's been going on for the agriculture in the Central Valley, which is the third largest agricultural economy in the entire world. And so much of that economy is really based on the replumbing of California's watersheds to serve an area that 
that were wetlands, right? Before mm-hmm. colonization, mm-hmm. it was wetlands. It was marshes. People who grow up in California don't even know what a marsh is. <laughs> right. When <it laughs> Very was much. Once, they, we know. don't even see many marshes growing up, especially in an urban area. And yet, you know, a lot of these places where we live now used to be marshlands, right? Mm-hmm. And so, especially um, inland, you know, at, at times like this, an inland sea. Right, right. And of course, every 200 years, like absolutely Mm -hmm. turns into an an inland sea, as we've heard from the cultural tradition, Mm -hmm. um, up to the science, the the most current science Mm -hmm. with Dr. Daniel Swain talking about the arc storm. And a few days ago, we heard about Gavin Newsom talking about floods like this are why we need to build the twin tunnels under the Delta and and trying to sort of use these disasters as like a kind of justification for an even more artificial engineering of the water system. So, you know, I'd love to hear your perspective on the power of water. And is it really feasible, possible to engineer our way out of a millennia, millions of years long flood regime? In my personal opinion, there might be, but it has to do with flood storage and precipitation storage and bioengineering, not cement, not riprap, not channelization. We need to, and and this is accepted science, like (laughs) the power of water is that water's worth a lot of money. And so is the development. And California can be a little bit I don't know if it's right to use this term, but schizophrenic about how it cares about its water. You have, you know, one side that's like, let's restore and preserve and avoid and mitigate and 30 by 30. On the other hand, it's like, let's build these tunnels to get water as fast as possible down to Southern California, because there's going to be a big drought there forever. And we need to get water there. And it will put a lot of people to work. So in my opinion, I'm more on... (laughs) You know, the other side of not only taking land back, but water back Mm -hmm. and keeping it where it wants to be, which is in braided streams, in marshes, in wetlands, in vernal pools, flowing down rivers and not in a tunnel under the delta that's already subsided. And even you and I were talking about this earlier, even the most conservative farmers in the Delta don't want this tunnel either. So, mm-hmm. Right. And I think you, you pointed out a very big difference between the folks. And we'll, of course, we will hear this from the large agribusiness in the Central Valley. I'm waiting, not waiting to see the new billboards now come out about we need more dams. We need more reservoir capacity, which again, like given the power of a storm, and this is not even this is a shadow of of the 200-year flood event that will happen, but we just don't know right. when in terms of the, the ability to knock out infrastructure. But the idea that only damming and, and the control and the sale of water can support economically communities, you know, this is a different perspective from, I think, what you and I both share, which is actually restoring wetlands, restoring the 98% of wetlands that have been destroyed since colonization is also a great source of jobs and meaningful work for a lot of people. But I do want to turn just in these last few minutes to, you know, sort of the pickle that we have found ourselves in over 
the development and the economic activity that has happened in these high risk areas. You know, now, I mean, you mentioned the subdivision that you grew up in, but there's more and more subdivisions are being built out into floodplains. And seemingly they're saying that this is going to relieve, you know, some of the housing pressures in the, in the major cities, but at what risk, especially given climate change and the new extreme and volatile climate regime that we're going to have. So what does this mean for poor black and brown farm worker communities in the Central Valley, the folks that are generally the ones that are most at risk and the most ignored when it comes to disaster relief? What do you see as an equitable and, and just way to lessen the risk for these communities and to help support both an equitable economic development that is also sustainable, given what we are facing now and will face in the future. Well, <laughs> you and I have also talked about this before because we know each other personally, but, you know, we're both kind of preppers, but prepper for the for the climate resilience. And so community left wing preppers. <laughs> yeah, community left-wing preppers. Yeah, we got to come up with some some better term for that. Somebody help us out. Help, somebody help us workshop this. But, you know, yeah, we, we just talked about how most of those farmers live in, uh, farm workers live in low-lying areas. And in some cases might even be beneficial that they live maybe in mobile homes or temporary homes that can be moved. But at some point, it's like, but move to where? And where is their upland? Like they're in a whole area that's surrounded by levees that are about to break. So, so we need to build, and I don't mean build by developing into more subdivisions, but have this, you know, yeah, this arc idea of extensive pieces of land that are, have been made as resilient as possible with planning, but that, but needs a multi-pronged approach of planning and consultation with stakeholders and especially to the native folks of the area and how they managed it at first. And I think in a lot of cases, some agencies are scrambling and they don't have the time to do their due diligence in reaching out to tribal folks and saying like, is there land that we can all work on to make sure that we have an area to get to if there's an emergency and could potentially turn into a just transition to community and like how do you manage like okay there's this like 30 by 30 public land thing but that might be we might need that land for people to escape to so is there some way to work that into the plan of this 30 by 30 is that some of those lands might need to be temporarily used for people to escape out of fire or flood or earthquake or like honestly I don't know the answer to that like, like, like sort of like yeah no sort this is exactly what is very similar to what I've been envisioning and what we've been kind of thinking about like you know we're in fire country now we're in flood country but we're in both really and you know having places that what comes to mind is uh you know after i think the sonoma fires there were some 
public campgrounds that opened up for people, mm-hmm. you know, in the right. campfire, we didn't have that. And so we had thousands and thousands of people that were in a Walmart parking lot and all this stuff. Right. And, and we still right. have thousands of fire survivors that are on our streets right now. And so this is a time of climate migration. This is where mm-hmm. climate refugees are absolutely going to be a part of our reality. And right. yeah, I mean, how can we use our public lands? How can we use combined conservation, which for many people have meant like no people hands off, but it right. doesn't mean that for native communities, like these were landscapes that have always been stewarded by human beings and to find a way to combine that and also have more or less, I guess, human refugia, right? For people right. during disasters and like campgrounds, like these kinds of things will be vital infrastructure to build Absolutely. out. In in my opinion, it's about it's also I think it's also about convincing agencies and the general public. Right. And and I see there could be a dual use for that of just in fair weather times recreation, but in foul weather times, refugia, as you said, or you know, potentially a place to like train or that kind of thing in that area. But there's been climate migration since time immemorial. And I think a, a point that you've helped me understand in meeting your folks is that, well, Native folks want to stay where their land is at. Like they don't want to mm-hmm. move to another state, another mm-hmm. continent. So how do we protect folks, you know, Native lands? So going back to the farm worker, maybe they can drive their trailer out but you know we're getting to a point in California where you can't even if you're a homeowner you can't even get insurance for your home in a fire zone but and then what happens when you can't get flood insurance so there's different economic models that need to be looked at but just infrastructure models that need to work in concert and need to give deference to the original folks that were there and how they manage it. Thank you so much. And yes, I mean, on a hopeful note, because on this show, we always like to, to end on a bit of hope that these are questions that are now being taken very seriously by state and federal agencies, as well as communities. So I look forward to working with you in the future and working with communities on precisely these kinds of urgent questions that need to be addressed now, even though the the threat may be in the future, that we have to start now because of the scale of the transformation that's required. So thank you so much for your work and your brain. And we'll look forward to seeing uh, what we can do in the future. So thank you so much, Myla. Thank you, Mel. Appreciate it. And I've been speaking to Myla Ablog, wetland ecologist and former regulatory scientist for the Army Corps of Engineers and for Caltrans. It works with communities in the Central Valley on environmental education, literacy, and climate adaptation. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.